Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Father David, wonderful to be with you tonight, and uh, thank you for your wonderful presentation last week. Um, it was well received. We got lots of emails, uh, especially, I know Candice over there really liked it. I, my favorite email com comment that we got was, wow, he doesn't speak just to our head, he speaks to our heart. And Father David, it's a, just a blessing to have you with us to be teaching us the faith. Thank you, Father Hezekiah. So if I am speaking to the heart, I thank God, and because that is what my desire. Is it time to begin? Yes, please, if you could uh, begin with a prayer. Okay, for the prayer tonight, I will say the usual Byzantine prayer, O Heavenly King, but then I am going to read, actually I should chant it, but in this case I'm going to read it. I'm going to read a liturgical text that is actually sung this evening. We just had Vespers in our church. It's raining so hard, it's, there's danger of flood here, so there are only a couple people. But it is one of the hymns that, it, that sung for Vespers for the Tuesday in the week before Lent. In the Byzantine Rite, we not only have Lent, but we have the week before Lent to get ready for Lent. And uh, even already during this week, we begin a very light form of fasting, abstinence from meat. There's a lot more to come next week. So Lent is something to be uh, eased into because it, means a radical change if it's going to produce the desired effect. So after, O Heavenly King, I will read this beautiful liturgical text to you. Those of you who are familiar with uh, Father, Father Hezekiah's mentioned Father Alexander Schmemann's book, Great Lent, it's the text that's chosen for the title page, or the, before the title. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present and filling all things, the treasury of all blessings and giver of life. Come dwell within us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord. With great joy, O faithful, let us receive the divinely inspired announcement of the fast. Like the Ninevites of old, like the harlots and publicans who heard John preaching repentance, through abstinence, let us prepare ourselves for communion at the Master's liturgy in Zion. Let us cleanse ourselves with tears before he washes our feet. Let us pray that we may see the fulfillment of the old Passover and the revealing of the new. Let us prepare to adore the cross and resurrection of Christ our God. Let us cry aloud to him, do not put us to shame, O lover of mankind, do not deprive us of our expectation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, notice that this text uh, concludes with asking the Lord not to deprive us of our expectation. That, of course, assumes that we really do expect something. It's not simply the considering of, of one or several ideas. We expect something, something to happen. It is phrased in the hymn, uh, in the center of the hymn, as the happening is that our having communion at the Master's liturgy in Zion. That, of course, the Master's liturgy, as we spoke uh, last week, it is the Master's work the master's accomplishment, in this case through his passion, death, burial, and rising, and that we expect and, and beg that we not be deprived of our expectation to share in communion at this mystery. This expresses uh, a central dynamic of liturgical reality, 
and you can describe it in a couple of ways. First way we could use is that liturgy always involves anticipation and fulfillment. It is something for which we must prepare and the preparation enables us to have the capacity to be given what our expectation is, the fulfillment of the expectation. In the case of this hymn, described as communion at the master's liturgy in Zion. When the church uses that expression, it's very deliberate. It doesn't mean simply a, uh, an imaginary remembrance of an historical chronological event uh, two millennia ago that we stop and for a couple hours uh, remember as something that's in the past and over with. We don't speak of having communion at something that happened in the old historical Jerusalem, which is gone, by the way. The fathers of the church, uh, one of them, St. Gregory of Nyssa. Now, Christians, ever since the first Roman persecution ended, Christians have always loved to go on pilgrimages, and they still do. And uh, I don't think any effort uh, that could be made to try to stop that will succeed. But St. Gregory of Nyssa, who had a kind of mm, dour, he wasn't a dour man, but he had a sort of dour attitude about pilgrimages. Uh, because he saw everybody in his congregation wanting to eagerly go to Jerusalem. And he said, what do you want to go there for? He said, everything that happened there is here. Everything that happened there is here. Now, he went to rather an extreme because there is this desire in the way that we are constituted as human beings that uh, we want to have a kind of tangible association. I have gone on pilgrimage to the holy places, and I am very, very glad that I did, and I hope that I can do it again sometime. So we wouldn't go to the same extent that St. Gregory of Nyssa does, but we should uh, take a lesson from what he says uh, and what this hymn says, that we are given a share in communion at the Master's Liturgy in Zion, and that is not simply something that is one of many things in chronological time. It's an entry, entry into an eternal reality that takes place through a relational union with the triune God. So we speak of liturgy as that which makes this possible. Now, most of us, I think, uh, those, of, those of us who have done at least some reading, maybe not a whole lot, but some in, in, from books about the liturgy, and you find this expression that I'm going to mention in virtually all sources that are good, whether they come from the Byzantine or Latin or other traditions. And it's, it's an expression in Latin that is this. It's only five words. Lex orandi est lex credendi. I see heads nodding. How many have heard this phrase? Yes, most of you have heard it. And of course, uh, it, was, it was used very heavily by my teacher, Father Schmemann. One of the mysteries of this phrase is that nobody really knows who, who coined it or said it first, but it's been around for a long time. And when translated, it means, of course, uh, lex orandi, lex, the word lex means law. In this sense, law is referring to something not necessarily in a law book, but a standard, a standard, a, a, a measure that is, that expects the best. So the measure, the standard, lex orandi of prayer, the standard of prayer, the law of prayer, est, is, so we have now uh, not an object, but a predicate nominative following. The is lex, again, the standard or law, credendi, of belief or faith. So the standard of prayer is the standard of belief, standard of faith. Another way of saying that might be that 
Uh, you can tell what a person believes by the way they pray. Now, there is another slightly more complex version of this phrase. Uh, and, and in this case, we know uh, the source. The source, again, is in the West. It's uh, Prosper of Aquitaine, I believe in the sixth century, a devoted follower of St. Augustine. And he said that lex, or, or in, in this case, yes, he said lex supplicandi, in other words, supplication, the standard of supplication, statuat, establishes, establishes, foundationalizes, the legem, now we have an object, not a predicate nominative, legem credendi. So again, the foundation of the house of faith, the foundation upon which the house of faith is built is the standard of prayer, the standard of supplication. So that means that in both cases in this phrase, prayer, the prayer of the church, in this case, liturgy, the prayer of the church, the work of the church, Liturgy provides the foundation of the house of faith. And we have to immediately add, not the other way around, not the other way around. In other words, you don't say that faith primarily teaches you to pray. Well, that might sound surprising. Now, of course, faith is necessary for prayer. But the ex very expression of faith is to be found in prayer. So the experience, faith being an experience, not just a list of propositions that we say yes to, one of the difficulties of the past many centuries, we'll talk about it in just a little bit, is that uh, faith, and liturgy and piety have suffered a kind of divorce <laughs> in that they're, each one of them is pushed into a, a separate little cubbyhole and don't have much to do with each other anymore. Faith by many is considered something that has to do with giving an intellectual assent. And so theology is related to faith in, in terms of theology is the is the means by which intellectual experts analyze faith. Well, that's far different than the fathers of the church who said that the true theologian is the one who prays. <laughs> you see? So faith is, or, or, or theology and faith is not primarily an, an intellectual exercise. Yes, it involves the mind, it does. But it's not simply a process of analysis in which human beings who have this ability of the intellect take what, what our senses receive and analyze it with our reason and draw conclusions from it. You can't reach faith that way, but faith rather is the gift of God, as the church teaches, that is imparted through the experience of the church that expresses itself in the church's worship, the church's prayer. So liturgy foundationalizes faith. That's uh, perhaps the, the, uh, the idea tonight. I don't like to talk too much about ideas, but I'll use the word here. That's the idea or principle, the first one that I would like to emphasize this evening. Now, again, these talks are called a um, return to liturgical catechesis. Uh, so catechesis, again, as we said last week, is a, something that is heard orally, a tradition that is heard orally through the ear, comes by word of mouth and heard by the ear. So that means that how we hear what is said to us regarding the church should be heard liturgically, heard liturgically, in, in a liturgical framework with, with the 
prayer of the church, the liturgy of the church being the lax, being the foundation, being the model, being the, the form that faith takes in, in worship, in liturgy. Now, Father Schbemann said in this very excellent book, Liturgy and Tradition, uh, that we must never take that for granted because, in fact, uh, a great deal of what uh, at least a good number of us have heard uh, over the years has confused this issue very deeply and thus added to the trouble of this divorce, uh, the divorce, again, between liturgy, theology, and piety. And so, for example, Father Schmemann says this, I'm reading from page 46 in Liturgy and Tradition. Uh, this is his commentary, by the way, on, on what he has seen transpire in Oh, he's, he's writing this in the 70s. He died in 83. So he's seeing the effect that an attempt at liturgical reform has had on the liturgy of the West. And honestly, Father Alexander did not think very much of what happened. And this is what he said about it. It is truly sad that some 50 years of constructive work within the liturgical movement, this, the liturgical movement referring to uh, what went on in the earlier part of the 20th century with such great figures we mentioned last week, Romano Guardini and Louis Bouillet, Pius Parish and others. Uh, it is truly sad that some 50 years of constructive work within the liturgical movement were simply swept away by a hasty acceptance of such principles as the famous, and then he puts this in quotes, the famous relevance. Liturgy must be relevant. Liturgy must meet, again in quotes, the urgent needs of modern society. Or liturgy must be, again in quotes, the celebration of life. Or, again in quotes, liturgy must answer the need for social justice. Now, the trap here, of course, is that relevance and the needs of modern or ancient or any other period of, of, of time of a society, or even celebrating life, which is a good thing, or, or social justice, when understood rightly, is also a good thing. But the purpose of liturgy is not to be hijacked uh, so that liturgy becomes an agenda for any cause whatsoever no matter how noble that cause may sound. Because once liturgy is, is forced uh, to take upon itself to be being a tool of an agenda, it loses, loses its place as the lex orandi, as the, as the foundation of faith. Then he goes on to say, and I'll, I'll turn to another source, this is uh, David Fagerberg's uh, from his book, Liturgy After Liturgy. He has a picture there, Father Schmemann on the front. Uh, David Fagerberg te teaches at Notre Dame. And I mentioned him last time, but I didn't have this book with me last time. This is what he, quoting Father Alexander, uh, gives this passage in his book, Liturgy Outside Liturgy. Finally, one may ask, what do you propose? What do you want? To this I will answer without much hope, I confess, of being heard and understood. We need liturgical theology, viewed not as a theology of worship and not as a reduction of theology to liturgy, but as a slow and patient bringing together of that which was for too long a time and because of many factors broken and isolated, liturgy, theology, and piety, broken and isolated. We need their reintegration within one fundamental vision. Otherwise, liturgical theology is an illegitimate child of a broken family, he says. 
It exists, that is, liturgical theology exists, only, maybe I should say it ought to exist, only because theology ceased to, to seek in the lex orandi, in the experience of prayer, its source and food. Because liturgy stopped being conducive to theology. Now that might sound very conceptual and, and difficult to understand, but what simply is meant, liturgy ceased to be conducive to theology because theology was isolated as being an intellectual exercise for experts, and, and thus you have the various sorts of theology. You have, you have the study of scripture you, or biblical theology. You have moral theology. You have dogmatic theology. You have pastoral theology. You have liturgical theology. And uh, m most of us who are, are priests have studied these in various forms in the seminary. And unfortunately, all of these are often treated as departments that don't really have much communication with each other. Instead of providing this, this integrated vision to be reintegrated. And you might be tempted to say, well, does it really matter? Well, it matters a great deal because it affects how the faith is experienced by the faithful. Thus, for example, if the three are divorced from each other, liturgy, theology, and piety, what happens? Separate liturgy from theology and piety, and believers expect nothing but beautiful and mysterious ceremonies in which they take no real part. Separate theology from liturgy and piety, and it becomes an intellectual exercise for a privileged group of academics. Separate piety from theology and liturgy, and it loses its living content and term of reference because it becomes simply an individualized expression based on feeling. Piety that is based on my feelings whether or not those feelings are formed by liturgy or theology or not. So you have, you could say, this, this divorce between the mind, the heart, and the, and the guts, to use the, the uh, biblical model, you know, that, uh, and that word guts, by the way, is used in Scripture. Jesus uses it in the, in the gospel. We don't hear it in the translations that get read to us, usually. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> the gospel uh, passage from John 7, which in the Byzantine tradition is read on Pentecost Sunday, and I know it, it would be read also in the Latin tradition, I don't know exactly when, but uh, that, uh, there's a verse there in John 7 that says, on the last, the great day, the feast, Jesus cried out, and said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And then usually what we hear in English is, from the heart of the one who believes in me, rivers of living water shall flow. But the original text of the gospel says that the rivers of living, I almost said livers, but like rivers, <laughs> But it, it, I, I mentioned that because it's, it applies. Rivers of living water, says the original Greek of the gospel, will, will come gushing forth from one's splachnis. Splachnis. That's not the word for heart in Greek. It's the word for one's innards. <laughs> from one's guts. And here it's being used in a very, we might say, earthy way to say that from the very core of one's being, these rivers of living water, the and, and then the gospel says that these rivers of living water, the spirit will flow. And then the gospel text goes on to say that Jesus spoke this concer about concerning the spirit 
uh, that those who believe in him were to receive. Because the spirit was not yet given, again, I'm quoting the gospel, the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, in the gospel of John, when we hear of Jesus being glorified, it's always referring to the cross. The hour of Jesus' glory in the gospel of John is the hour of the cross. Even the resurrection proceeds from the cross. Uh, the climactic point in the gospel of John is when Jesus cries out with a loud voice on the cross, teteleste, in Greek. It is finished. Uh, not finished in terms of over, but finished in terms of completed, fulfilled. In that sense, the Latin does capture it rather well. Consumatum est. It's consummated. The same root for that, for that uh, uh, perfect form of the verb, cateliste, uh, that, that Jesus cries out from the cross, the same word that's described, the same root that's described for God finishing the work of creation on the sixth day in Genesis, in, in the Septuagint text of Genesis. From teleo, to be complete. So Jesus cries out, all is completed. And then he dies and how, his, how is his death described in the Gospel of John? That he paredoken, he hands over his spirit, and then he is pierced and the blood and water flow. So the spirit, the water, and the blood that John loves to speak of are there to testify. And that's the climax of John's Gospel. The resurrection will occur because of that finishing. Because of that glorifying of Christ, when I have been lifted up, I will draw all to myself. So that, that is the source of, of the church's piety, that river of living water coming from, from the guts. And the heart as the seat of the will and, and the mind as the seat of the intellect, yes. They must all be in sync, as we like to say now if there is not going to be a divorce between theology and liturgy and piety, they must come back together again. And uh, here's another uh, way of, of speaking, again, using the words of, of uh, Father Schmemann in regard to this necessity for there to be this reintegration of theology, piety, and, and liturgy. He says this, the overwhelming majority, and here he's speaking of his own experience in the church in which he lived, the overwhelming majority of Orthodox people, he says, have no interest in the meaning of worship. The believer loves the ceremonies, symbols, the whole atmosphere of the church building. This familiar impression is nourishment for his soul, but this love does not long for understanding. So the divorce between liturgy and theology this love does not long for understanding because it's a love based simply on feeling, individualized feeling, because the purpose of the liturgy is thought of precisely as a bestowal of a spiritual experience, an, ex an experience for me. Again, this, this reducing everything to the individual. Why I, I mentioned last week why Romano Guardini said that he thought that by the time you know, uh, the, the turn of the century came at the end of the 20th century, we, we wouldn't be capable of liturgical acts anymore because we'd be too individualized. By the way, uh, you may or may not know that the word that uh, the word in Greek that would be best, uh, here we're translating, instead of from Greek from English, from English to Greek, uh, the word in Greek that the English word individual, individual is best translated into is idiotis. And you know what that sounds like. Why, why the idiot? Why is the individual an idiot? In, the individual is an idiot because the individual is, is self-described, does not regard him or herself as defined relationally, but is content with imploding 
into a smaller and smaller prison of what I call my life. And my life is not defined primarily, if I choose this path, by communion, by relation with others. And that's a great tragedy because that is how God lives in the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is what he has created us for. So the person, on the other hand, is defined relationally. The person is, finds his or her very definition in relationship. And, that, and not just any sort of relationship, but a relationship that is modeled on the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who, of course, are divine persons, and we are created ones. But nevertheless, our love is to be modeled on their love so that ultimately we share perfectly in their love. And if we even think that our, our religious feelings, to the extent that they suffer from this individualization, are a trustworthy guide, a, th a trustworthy thermometer for being authentically a disciple of Christ, we risk great, uh, great deception. So, therefore, Father goes on to say, his, his great, uh, anyone who has read anything by Father Shemaman, uh, uh immediately sees that he regards the, the great trouble of our time especially as secularism. Secularism. Of course, secularism from secula, uh, the, the world or the age. To be a secularist is to oppose our my life in the time I live with anything other than that. With, for example, uh, this age becomes opposed to the kingdom of God. The two are not allowed to influence each other. I may, in fact, be a very religious person. I may go through all of the external expressions of living a religious life. That is to say, I may be a very good Pharisee. The Pharisee was very religious. The people that the people among among the Jews, among the chosen people, that were the most religious, a great number of them were our Lord's most violent and bitter enemies because they they realized that he was exposing their religiosity, their piety, as a false individualism. You know, we have, uh, in, in the Byzantine tradition, it was already read as the Sunday Gospel uh, two weeks ago this past Sunday, uh, on, on what the first of the pre-Lenten Sundays, which is called the Sunday of the Publican and the Pharisee. And everybody knows this parable of Jesus in all traditions. But often people, again, don't realize that, that when, the, when Jesus first told the, publican, the, the story of the publican and the Pharisee, there must have been a great deal of laughter that ensued, because it's a very funny story. Uh, we, don't, we don't think of it so much that way when we hear it solemnly chanted, as it ought to be. But... Uh, the, the story begins by the Lord saying two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a, a tax collector, a publican. And then, again, if it's correctly translated, it goes on to say, the Pharisee stood and prayed with himself, saying, oh God, I thank you <laughs> that I am not like the rest of men. Uh, and so what's that, what that is saying is the Pharisee is the one who makes long prayers. The Pharisee is the one who fasts twice a week, who goes through all the external forms. But all of it is an expression of self-worship. And the great delusion, you know, the, one of the, 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 the greatest mishap, the greatest trap of the spiritual life, according to the, the ascetical tradition, is that, God forbid, we fall into delusion. Uh, which is called either plani in Greek or, or uh, uh, what's the word in, in, in Slavic, in, in Slavonic? Prelest, uh, prelest. And that, what is, what is that? Well, it's actually thinking that, that you are holy 
uh, holy in the sense of having right piety and in relation with God when all I or you are doing is worshiping and serving oneself. And to be in such a delusion about that that we don't even see it. That's where secularism ends up because it opposes you can be you can be very religious and, re, and religion is kept it in its compartment and then you can be <clears throat> very worldly and being worldly is kept in its compartment and of course what is the tragic result of that people live double lives are we not seeing in the church now the the terrible wounds of the church from those who live double lives and let us not be pharisees even if we do not live that particular form of double lives that we see in the in the news do we not have our own versions even perhaps in small ways of living double lives well that's what the pharisee did to the point where he thought that he was god so father alexander says a secularist can be a very religious man attached to his church regular in attending services generous in his contributions acknowledging the necessity of prayer etc he will have his marriage blessed in church, his home blessed, his religious obligations fulfilled, all this in perfect good faith. But all this will not in the least alter the plain fact that his understanding of all these spheres, marriage, family, home, profession, leisure, and ultimately his religious obligations themselves will, not be, will be derived not from the creed he confesses in church, not from the incarnation, death, resurrection, and glorification of Christ, the Son of God becomes Son of Man, but from various philosophies of life. So what is the place, therefore, of liturgy to make it more hopeful, at least, that the Christian will be on the path that leads to communion, to personalization, and not from isolation and individualization. Well, I have found something just in this last week uh, quite remarkable. And uh, first it was uh, an article that I read in the New First Things magazine for this month. Uh, that is called, the article is called Baptism in Blood, Baptism by Blood. And it is a summary of the 21 it is called you can see the book a journey into the land of the coptic martyrs coptic martyrs refer to those 21 men coptic christians coptic orthodox christians who went as uh, migrant workers essentially to libya to earn some more money for their families and while they were there were were abducted by Islamist extremists and after being imprisoned for some time in which they were the attempt was made to force them to renounce their Christian faith uh, they were uh, actually let me hold up the book again on the top of the book you see that uh, illustration of men in orange and men in black the men in black are the Islamist guards uh, that are leading each one of them one of these 21 uh, Coptic Christians uh, at, on the seashore in Libya, where, in, where a few minutes after this, uh, their throats are going to be cut and their heads cut off. And while that is done, this happened in 2015, while that is done, they will all together call on the name of Jesus. So they are martyrs in the truest and fullest sense. They have already been canonized in the Coptic Church. What's interesting is that the parish priests, now there's 21 of them, 16 of them live in the same, came from the same village in, in Upper Egypt, as it's called, so Egypt near the, near the Nile Delta. 16 of them from that same village, with another uh, four from, from nearby uh, places. And then there's one who was not a copt at all, but he was... A, a Christian, we don't know what sort of Christian he was, probably not Orthodox, probably uh, Protestant or, or, or Latin Catholic, we don't know, he came from Ghana, he was, he was a black sub-Saharan African man, but he got put together with, with uh, these Coptic 
uh, Christian man. And at one point, the, their uh, captors thought, oh, he, maybe he's not really a Christian. So they, they were suggesting that maybe they could let him go. And he said, no, no, I'm a Christian just like they are. And all the other Coptic men said, yes, he's one of us. If you know the, if you know the story of the 40 holy martyrs of Sebast, celebrated in the church on March 9th, or the patron saints of Lent, happened in the 4th century. These were 40 soldier martyrs that, were, um, that died. Again, they refused to renounce their faith, and so they were exposed naked on a frozen lake on the Armenian border, uh, just between uh, Armenia and Cappadocia, uh, in, in the first week of March. And they were, if they would, if they were to deny Christ, they were uh, promised that uh, they would they would get their life, and that they would be immediately led to a warm bath. And one of them broke and and did. And unfortunately, as soon as he stepped into the warm bath that he that was provided him, died of hypothermia too much of a shock. However, one of, the, one of their guards who, who were presiding over this all-night vigil of being frozen to death had a dream or a vision in which he saw an angel coming down from heaven with 39 crowd, crowns, one missing, and he realized that the, the, missing one, the one missing was the one who had apostatized. So he declared himself a Christian on the spot and joined the other martyrs on the frozen lake. So very much uh, like the story of the 40 martyrs, this 21st of the 21 Coptic martyrs. The reason why I bring it up in this context, however, is that there is a description of the church life of this, these men. The parish priest in the village that 16 of them came from uh, spoke colloquially and said, they were ordinary guys, he said. I've never imagined any of them uh, uh, to have become saints. Yet when you find out about these ordinary guys, how they lived, you find out that, that even when they were away uh, in this, uh, uh, doing their, their agricultural work as, as migrant laborers. Their first concern was, was for their families. They would send everything that they earned home to their wives or parents. They kept nothing for themselves. They lived in, in uh, therefore, uh, great simplicity, even in asceticism. They prayed regularly. Uh, they kept, one of them insisted on keeping the fast, the fast prescribed in the church. Uh, most strictly, even though the local priest there uh, said that it wasn't necessary for him to do it because he had hard work to do. And the guy responded uh, with the words of Jesus in the gospel, man does not live by bread alone. So another one was recorded whenever he called his family, the first thing he would ask his wife and children, he would call them in the evening. And he said, have you said your evening prayers together? So ordinary guys. So the priest said. But this book, uh, the 21, is written by a famous German author, Martin Mosebach, and uh, who is not a young man. I think he's around my age or, or maybe a little older, so in the middle or late 60s. And he saw a handmade icon of these 21 Coptic martyrs in which the faces in the icon were cutouts from either uh, passport or identification photos. So they had 21 photos. And then the handmade icon added uh, white robes and crowns taken from various icons of other saints, fashioning a new icon. And, he, and Martin Mosebach, the author, was so fascinated by this site that he determined that he would go on a trip to Egypt and, and interview and stay even in the village where most of them came from to find out as much about them as he could. And what he finds out is very, very amazing and revealing. And it, it applies particularly in our understanding as liturgy being what foundationalizes the faith. This is a little bit from chapter 13 in the book. It's called The Martyr's Liturgy, this chapter. The old parish church of Al-Aur, 
that's the village where, where the 16 of them live, cannot be seen from the street, as is often the case in Egypt. It is hidden by a high wall with an imposing gate in an area where upper-class villagers used to live. The once dignified homes with their 19th century architecture now lie in ruins, their owners having long since emigrated to Australia or Argentina, referring to the emptying out of, of the Christian Middle East because of persecution by, by uh, militant Islam. Right next to the gate leading to the church courtyard is a watchtower of the sort that has been built all over the country, a concrete pillar about three yards high with a cabin on top, similar to the type of cell inhabited by early Christian pillar saints. A peasant boy with a shaved head dressed in uniform holds an old-fashioned gun out the window as he stands guard, even here in a, virtually, in a village virtually forgotten until February 15, 2015, a village in which half the population is Christian, the church needs to be protected. This church is particularly important to me because it is where most of the martyrs were baptized by total immersion and where they spent much of their lives. In Egypt, as well as in Europe, membership in a church choir attests to one's special commitment to service and community. But among cops, the choir does more than simply embellish the liturgy. It serves a much weightier role. Almost the entire Coptic liturgy is sung. Even the readings are sung. Because singing is such an essential part of the liturgy, the members of the choir are effectively liturgists. They do not have the same rank as a priest or deacon, but are nevertheless part of the priesthood. They wear liturgical clothing, then it's described. They flank the sacred door from which the priest emerges when he turns to address the worshipers. They stand much like guards. So they look, in many ways, not, not unlike the priest himself. For Copts, being in the church choir means singing for almost three hours straight. No instrumental music, no melodies written by ecclesiastical composers, just ancient chants on the prayers of the liturgy. The chants are difficult to memorize because although the individual melodies differ, they do so only slightly. Indeed, it's a unique type of singing that seeks to fuse the entire liturgy into a single flowing river. And unlike its Latin counterpart, and the author is a Latin Rite Catholic, by the way, wrote a very, very good book about some of the difficulties in, in the uh, Latin liturgy called The Heresy of Formlessness. So unlike its a Latin counterpart, which is made up of distinctly separate prayers, this musical rite is a closed circuit, so to speak, that doesn't, be, that doesn't build toward a climax, but rather begins with one. Those who want to learn more about the 21 must necessarily study this liturgy. As it alone constituted the most important mental and aesthetic influence on their lives. The liturgy constituted the most important mental and aesthetic influence on their lives. They were raised and shaped by it, far more than they were by, all, by their few years of school for those who went to school at all. And then I'll just do a little bit more and then it will be time to conclude. Time and again, he says, I marveled at the liturgical experience there in this little village church. It makes it clear that even in the most modest of spaces, the church rises, as it were, above the boundary between the supernatural and the terrestrial, between the sacred and the profane. The rite consists of many prayers, but on the whole, it aims to be less a prayer than a presentation of the hereafter, a realization of the beyond, which intersects with the material world through Jesus' sacrifice. Eternity is present in every moment of a life subject to the passion of time. And, and thus he goes on. But this expression of the liturgy that is the foundational formation of life, that's what's meant by lex orandi as lex credendi, 
And it's that to which we must strive to return if what we call a catechesis, a hearing of the faith, is going to be heard liturgically. So that's my, my offering for this evening. And we have time now for a little pause and, and then some questions. Thank you again, Father David, for your wonderful presentation. Thank this you, evening. Father. The first, the first uh, question I wanted to, to share with you uh, comes from um, uh, an ICC friend who is wondering about the lives of the hermits and the monks and their isolation, uh, and then comparing that with the liturgical gathering and your comments today about the importance of being in communion. That is, a, that is an excellent uh, reflection. Yes, yes, we do. We do have the hermits on the one hand, but once we come to know them, let's just pull two examples right out, the two perhaps most obvious of them. St. Anthony the Great, who is considered a hermit, he did not establish a community around him, yet people came everywhere to see him, sometimes so many people that he could complain about it, yet he always made himself, uh, he always put, him, put himself at their disposal. So even his eremitic life was lived for the sake of the others in the church. Uh, then uh, uh, perhaps an extreme example, St. Simeon the Stylite, you know, on his three, his three different pillars, he had a succession of three pillars, and I forget how many years altogether if you add the three up, but he is described by, by writers at, at the time of whenever people came to his pillar, he would, he would speak of the gospel and the love of God to them. He did not, uh, you know, you think of the pillar saint perhaps, uh, rebuking them even in a more extreme way than John the Baptist did uh, for their sins because he lived a, such an extreme life of, of, ex of ascetic struggle. But no, uh, Simeon the Silent was known as being an, a, a vehicle of, the, of giving them the love of God. So not even the hermits live in isolation. And then another thought that comes to mind is that in the in the liturgical text in the Byzantine Rite, for the week before Holy Week, the week before Palm Sunday, there are many references made to all of all of the hermits and the anchorites now leaving their hermitages to come up with the rest of the whole assembly of the church to be there for the Master's liturgy that is accomplished in Zion, as tonight's Vesper hymn says. So even the hermit, though he appears to have a certain degree of, of isolation, is really not isolated. And even though, for example, during, let's think of St. Benedict, you know, St. Benedict did the opposite of what he told others to do. If you were a Benedictine and you wanted to be a hermit, you had to be a, a tried and proven monk of experience. But Benedict, when he started out, began as a hermit, then began to form communities around him. In fact, there's a charming story, St. Gregory tells it in the dialogues, of how Benedict was up in the, up in the hills, and even the, the nearest parish priest didn't know about him. And it was Easter Sunday, and the, the parish priest heard a voice saying, here you are preparing yourself a savory meal while my servant Benedict is starving. So he went, took his took his food pot and went hunting around in the hills and found Benedict who had who had collapsed from exhaustion and even lost had lost the counting of the days of Lent. He didn't know what day it was anymore. He, he didn't know that Pascha had come. And, mm -hmm. and the, the parish priest fed him. So that's one of the reasons why Benedict uh, discouraged uh, young, inexperienced monks from living as hermits, because even for the hermit, there has to be that communion. So those are some examples that come to mind. Thank you, Father. You mentioned in your uh, presentation this evening about the chanting of the gospel, uh, the solemn chanting of the gospel. And we have a question about just chanting 
of the liturgy in general. It's something that many of our participants may be unfamiliar with, or at least uh, at least the idea of the entire liturgy of enchanted you spoke about. Um, and I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on the value of, uh, of chanting okay. the liturgy and, and its place in the church. Sure. Uh, first, from, from a strictly historical perspective, uh, Jewish and Christian worship, and actually you could add to that uh, most of the worship of the other religions of the world, those that have uh, expressions of worship. Not every religious tradition necessarily does. For example, Theravada Buddhism doesn't have an expression of worship, properly properly speaking. But uh, in, in the Judeo-Christian experience of worship, there is only one way of expressing it, and that is through the chanted voice. Uh, either the chanted voice or sometimes something that is very, very quiet, almost inaudible. But one thing that you never have as a vehicle of worship is the spoken voice, historically, the, the way I'm speaking now. You don't find that as a vehicle for worship. It can be a fine vehicle for teaching and oratory. Of course, from the... Uh, the use of the spoken voice in worship, the homily is the exception. But the homily is, is not, the text of the homily is not a prescribed text. But for the text of the liturgy, whether they be hymns, whether they be prayers, whether they be readings, in the Jewish and Christian tradition, the desire to have them in a transformed or elevated speech. So they do not appear simply to be an exhortation or a lecture or something that goes on in the same way as, as the fathers used to say, the conversation in the marketplace or in the forum. So there is this elevated, ele elevated sense of the voice through chanting, and that has been the the medium of worship where at where it has been abandoned is i would have to say and i don't think i'm simply expressing a, an opinion i think i'm expressing a, a fact where that has been abandoned is a departure from the tradition that has been received whether you whether you're eastern western or whatever that's the tradition that's received just as to get on another hobby horse i don't even i don't even i shouldn't even call it that uh <laughs> Christian liturgy has been oriented in one way from its inception, and that is that we all, including the priest, face the Lord, except at those times when the priest directly addresses the congregation. To depart from that is to depart from the received tradition of the church. So I, I don't mean to offend but that it is simply a fact. I've got another question coming in here that's somewhat related, Father, but, but, but a little bit more on the practical end. Uh, I might even jump in myself after you make your comments, as I like to do on occasion. Uh, it comes from John Paul, uh, oh, I'm sorry, John Pope, and he says, what small step, or maybe two, <laughs> can an average church attending family of a Novus Ordo parish do to help the liturgy, piety, and theology integration in their mass? What might we tell our pastor? Um, maybe that's a second question what we might tell our pastor, but I think there's more of an internal uh, question here that might yeah. actually, you know, come to all of us. What, what can we do as you're, you're standing in the pews and here's what's going on? Maybe you could give us some insights and recommendations. Uh, perhaps, perhaps in general, uh, there should be uh, an attempt to have a, a study, just as we call, you know have Bible studies, so-called, in church. Uh, churches perhaps should should have available mm -hmm. some kind of not not overly uh, academized or or so so dense that it try, that it just scares people away, but still some, some good substantial uh, introduction to the history of the liturgy. I found in my experience that people are very interested in this. And, and, and it, has to be, it has to be presented accurately, but, but in, a, in a kind of 
you know, uh, calm way to show and, and, and using, using trustworthy sources to show how the churches worship, both in the Eucharist and in the Liturgy of the Hours. And I'll, I will speak of, I'll give an evening in the last two sessions of, of this webinar to each one of those to show how the expression of this in the church uh, has followed a pattern that does come from apostolic tradition and from the time of the fathers. And the purpose of this pattern is to, as I read from that uh, chapter on the liturgy in the Coptic, in the church of where the Coptic martyrs went, to have this experience of, of time being the vehicle. We don't throw away time, nor do we throw it like we don't throw away our body. But we do use these things, the matter and the body, in order to enter into that which is eternal. And that's what the liturgy must do. The liturgy, if, if it is so that in some places, unfortunately, the liturgy has become a celebration of the here and now, let us celebrate us, you know. If that's what's happened, we have to be brought uh, to a, a higher, the purpose of the liturgy is to raise us, you know, sursum corda, let us lift up our hearts. So there has to be this lifting up into the eternity of God, or as the Roman Mass says, you know, it's one. It's my favorite line from the canon of the Roman Mass that, uh, in English, it says that we pray that that your angel take this oblation to the heavenly altar, so that as we receive from the altar, it's, rece it's referring to receiving from the heavenly altar, the sacred body and blood of Christ. So the liturgy is, is the ascension to the heavenly altar where Christ reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit over heaven and on earth. That's what the liturgy must convey. It's not doing that. It's not being the Christian liturgy. And uh, rather than, you know, uh, rather than ranting about abuses, we probably all do a bit of that, but rather than doing that simply to, to teach from the vast amount of, of uh, historical uh, information that's available so that people have an understanding of how, how things uh, expressed this central reality uh, of the faith. Father, thank you for giving a wonderful endorsement for the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture um, and our uh, education of the faithful. <laughs> what you just described is exactly what we're trying to do, and you're absolutely right. People are interested, uh, and uh, if we just present it in a in a well, I'm not always calm. I'll grant you that, but in a in a in a reasoned uh, and well formed manner. So. Um, so that is exactly what you described is what we're, we have been trying to do here with the Institute. And, um, and I hope everybody is appreciating what Father David is sharing with us tonight. I, Father, just in conclusion, um, from a standpoint, not only of a priest, but also the father of a family and hearing this kind of almost, I, I hear a bit of a heartfelt cry from this person writing in to say, you know, uh, what are we to do in this situation? And you were talking about our, our, our preparations uh, as we um, as we uh, as we study in the context of our, of our of our believing community and so forth. We at the end of the day, we have to come prepared to yes. lift up our hearts. And I, I think that this is at home. Uh, yeah, well, this is this is the point I want to come to with that question that we had before uh, in our pregame discussion, but also in this question regarding chanting. Uh, we have to prepare at home. We, the Institute offers our Sunday Gospel reflection every week. That's part of it. But we have, to be, we have to be in our homes living the liturgical life, living the liturgical cycle. This is why Lent is such a, this is a beautiful moment to be having this discussion, really, because we are now given the, 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 the biggest on-ramp, if you will, the biggest invitation, the most powerful invitation to enter into this whole uh, living of the liturgical life of the church in our homes, uh, and then uh, and then to bring that with us when we come to church on Sunday. So oftentimes I say, people are kind of helicoptered into liturgy and dropped into the middle of this whole thing. And they forget, as Vatican II says, the Eucharist is the source and summit, right? Well, there's a whole mountain in between. Uh, and if we haven't begun to prepare to climb that mountain, then we're going to get to the summit out of breath, 
and, and, and risk uh, uh, struggling and really being able to participate. And I, I want to encourage our participants in a very practical way. Uh, number one, regarding the fast that's coming. And number two, regarding chanting your prayers in the home. Uh, Father Hezekiah, Father David, I don't know what you mean. Let me give you an example. <laughs> okay. Uh, Father David was mentioning, I'm just going to open up to a gospel passage. I don't know. I'm just, anybody can do this and you can try this at home. Don't be afraid and don't be embarrassed with your families. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. It's a simple, recto tono chant. Anyone can do that. One note. It's okay. To begin to learn to sing together again, because it opens our heart up in a new way to the work of the Lord and prepares us to come to Sunday to lift up our hearts. And we have to come prepared. And I think more than anything, if we come spiritually prepared to enter into the communion of the church on the day of the resurrection, we're going to bring so much more to liturgy than our comment to our priest or Father David, as you were saying, our critique of the liturgical abuse and so forth, to come spiritually prepared as a family, uh, as spouses, as Christians, to then re-engage in the liturgy in our parishes in a vibrant, engaged, and, and, and active participation as, as the Fathers of Vatican II uh, encouraged us. Um, but Father David, thank you again so much for being with us tonight. Thank you again for being with us, Father David, and all of our participants tonight. May God bless you, and, uh, and please be assured of our prayers. I'll see you soon as we begin our journey of Great Lent together. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.